You're listening to an audio resource from Redemption Hill Church. This resource is not meant to be a replacement for participation at a local church, but an accessory to the care you're receiving from your own pastors. To learn more about Redemption Hill Church or to give to our ministry, visit redemptionhilldsm.org. Let's stand together for the reading of Scripture. We'll read from Hebrews chapter 3. Hebrews chapter 3, and follow along as I read verses 1 through 6. Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses also was faithful in all God's house. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son, and we are his house, if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting and our hope. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Be seated. All right. All right, we do have Redemption Hill kids, so ages two to four and Five to nine. Thank you for those who are serving in Redemption Hill Kids and being faithful. Also, we have kids' sermon notes and totes that are in the hallway. So if you're in the service and that serves you, um, you can grab that. Before I begin, I already, I already read to you 9.1 of our Confession of Faith. And I want to read 9.9 because it does bear upon what we see today in God's Word. It's not on the screen. I'll just read it to you. And it's this, 9.9, so chapter 9, section 9. The office of mediator between God and man is exclusively Christ and is threefold. So today we're going to learn about what it means for Jesus. He is a prophet and a priest. Those two come out. It also says he is a king, king of the church of God. This may not be either in whole or any part transferred from him to any other. So that idea that he is prophet and priest is going to pop up and it's going to continue to pop up as we walk through the book of Hebrews. So after three-week break, we are back in it, which also means as we look at Hebrews, we're also back in the Old Testament, right? Kind of made that point over and over. We're in Hebrews means you're in the Old Testament. The book of Hebrews has already afforded us uh, the opportunity to see the greatness of God by focusing on Jesus. And the, one of the preeminent themes is that God has spoken. And what has been spoken is that Jesus is greater. We will see reasons why this morning. So before I begin and pray, I, I think it would be good to be reminded in light of the fact that Jesus has spoken need to remind you, need to remind myself that we, we do live in a world where there is actually so much noise. I kind of mentioned that at the outset before we prayed. There's just so much noise in this world. I mean, Pastor Rob and I were talking about this earlier of like, silence has become awkward, <laughs> right? Like, even when people pray together and corporately, it's like, who's going to get up first? <laughs> Can we, can we handle the awkwardness? It's just because we're so used to all the noise. And we live in a culture where the noise comes into our ears through words, and it's hard to stop and reflect 
on what God has spoken. Some of the noise is warranted, right? We have a conversation. It's warranted. But we need to hear from God. We need to hear from God. When I preach on Sunday morning, or Pastor Rob preaches on Sunday morning, we generally want you to hear from God through His Word, because I know and He knows all the noise that you experience between Monday and Saturday. So, God has spoken, and may the Holy Spirit teach our hearts and minds this morning. I'm going to pray for God's help, and then we'll get into today's message. Heavenly Father, I do need your help this morning. My prayer this morning and every Sunday is to be faithful to what you've said. Pray that you keep air from my mouth. I pray for these wonderful people in front of me, the saints that are sitting in front of me this morning, Lord. I trust that in the power of the Spirit, you will minister to their mind and to their heart and their lives. Lord, we don't want to walk away just with an intellectual nugget. We want to walk away transformed more and more to the image of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Accomplish your purposes, O Lord. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Over the years, I've engaged in conversations, I'm sure you have as well, um, about who is the greatest. Like We have an acronym now for this, GOAT, G-O-A-T, greatest of all time. When we have those, who's the greatest? For example... Is LeBron James or Michael Jordan the greatest basketball player of all time? Uh, I, I say it's Michael Jordan, but all the younger and less educated NBA fans might disagree. <laughs> and what happens when two parties debate about who is the greatest? What happens, right? Like data points are brought forth. Statistics are, are shared, right? That's what we do. So play, play a little game with me real quick. Here are some stats uh, that get thrown around when, when people debate who is the greatest basketball player. These are the data points for like LeBron James and, and uh, Michael Jordan. Uh, points per game in their career. Jordan, 30.1. LeBron, 27.2. Jordan. Uh, rebounds per game. All right, we'll give this to LeBron. He's 7.5. Jordan, 6.2, but also he was shorter. Steals per game, 2.3 for Jordan, 1.5 for LeBron. Turnovers, more, more turnovers by LeBron statistically, less for Jordan. Championships, four by Jordan, or excuse me, six by Jordan, four by LeBron. MVPs, five Jordan, LeBron, four. Finals MVPs, six Jordan, four LeBron. All defense, nine Jordan, six LeBron. Scoring titles, ten Michael Jordan, one LeBron James. After all that, I'm picking Jordan, knowing full well that these data points and others that I actually didn't share with you <laughs> might lead you to a different conclusion. <laughs> like, all NBA, Jordan 11, LeBron 19. Right. So, like, these type of conversations take place in all kinds of arenas. Everything from, you know, professional sports to different vocations. Who is the greatest philosopher of all time? Who is the greatest theologian of all time? And who is the greatest lawyer of all time? Does that exist, actually? Maybe not. But you get the point, right? You get the point. Who is the greatest whatever? 
Well, this type of question was clearly on the mind of the author of Hebrews. And it is the question we need to contend with this morning. We have already seen why Jesus is greater than the angels. In the overall argument that Jesus is greater, Hebrews actually kind of eases into the idea. All we have to do is look at God's created order, and we see that all of God's image bearers are greater than the angels, especially Jesus. So, while declaring Jesus is greater than the angels is good fodder for a sermon, it is another brick in the wall proclaiming the excellencies of Christ. The claim actually is not altogether shocking. I can, I can imagine back row Baptist Bob nodding off at this point because nothing was new to him. He knew Jesus is greater than the angels. He's greater than the angels. Nothing is new. Nothing new is being said until we get to Hebrews 3. All of a sudden, back row Baptist Bob wakes up. Back row Baptist Bob, who used to be a practicing Jew, hears something he had never considered. What would have been shocking for most Jews to hear in the first century is that Jesus is greater than Moses. The claim should challenge us this morning to consider if there's something or someone greater than Jesus in our lives. Even if you were a Jew who now believes Jesus is the Messiah, the claim still would have been jarring to some degree. It is this kind of claim that gets you run out of town. I mean, allow me to to explain that because the comparison helps us understand the gravity of of the claim. There is not a more revered person in the Old Testament than Moses. Moses wrote the first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch, right? He is the man who confronted Pharaoh when the people of God were enslaved in Egypt. God used Moses to administer the ten plagues against Pharaoh. Moses then led God's people out of Egypt. God used Moses to split the Red Sea. The notion that God used Moses to deliver Israel out of the hands of the Egyptians is actually one of the most critical motifs throughout all of Scripture. God exclusively spoke with Moses in Mount Sinai. It was Moses who gave the Ten Commandments. Right, coming down, tablets. It was Moses. Who was effectively the priest when God's people needed food and water. It was Moses. It was Moses who mediated between God and Israel. Long story short, Moses is a big deal for the Jews. Big deal. I was many years ago, I was chatting with another pastor, and we were, you know, just having a casual conversation. And we asked the question, you know, when you get to heaven, who other than Jesus, who are you most look, looking forward to seeing and talking to and meeting for the first time, you know? And he's like, Moses. Of all the people, he's like, that guy. If we're going to understand the gravity of comparing Moses to Jesus, we also need to turn to the New Testament. In the Gospel of John, we read about the stature of Moses as he's compared to Jesus. We read, John 1.17, For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Christ Jesus. 
The point that is not being made is that Moses did not express the grace of God or did not hold the tr- uphold the truth of God. The opposite's true. The point is that Moses, Moses actually did something spectacular. God used him to give Israel the law. By God's grace, the law is what held God's people together. That is, until the time of Christ. Through Christ, God has made himself known. When we discuss God's plan of redemption, Moses and Jesus can be spoken about in the same sentence because Moses played such a critical role, and we see that in the New Testament. Here's another passage from the Gospel of Mark. The first chapter of the Gospel of Mark, we read that Jesus heals a leper. Listen to how Jesus responds after the leper is healed. And I quote, See that you say nothing to anyone, he says to the leper, but, but, Go show yourself to the priest and offer for your cleansing what Moses commanded for a proof to them. The one who has ultimate authority, Jesus, appeals to the authority entrusted to Moses in the Old Testament. Jesus knows why Moses is important. The leper knows why Moses is important. So the command of Moses is to be followed. Here's another, here's a final example from the Gospel of Matthew. In this particular passage, we read about the transfiguration of Jesus. I mean, it had to have been amazing to witness. The transfiguration was an event in Jesus' life in which his appearance was like radiantly transformed. And who was there speaking with Jesus during this supernatural moment? Let's look at Matthew 17. After six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and his brother John, like the three guys, the three amigos, they go with Jesus everywhere, and led them up the high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good that we're here. If you wish, I will make three tents here. One for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. Peter was well-intentioned. right? In this passage, Peter was well-intentioned. He wanted to mark the moment as it would have been done in the day of Moses. But the point I want you to see that along with Elijah, the other great prophet of the Old Testament, Moses was present and he was talking with Jesus. Samuel was not there. The great King David was not there. The all-wise Solomon was not there. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel were not there speaking with Jesus. It was Elijah and Moses. Now, without a doubt, Without a doubt, what I am attempting to do is to elevate Moses in your psyche or your conscience so that you can better understand the significance of Moses in Jewish life. The comparison only makes sense if you see the greatness of Moses. So, these data points in the Old and New Testament, I think, are impressive. But here's one more data point in the book of Hebrews. And then we'll look closer at our passage. In the great faith chapter of Hebrews 11, Moses is described this way. By faith, Moses, 
when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw the child was beautiful and they were not afraid of the king's edict. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. By faith, he left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. By faith, he kept the Passover and sprinkled the blood so that the destroyer of the firstborn might not touch them. Moses, a great man of faith, would rather be disgraced because of his faith in Christ than be the recipient of all the treasures of Egypt. And Egypt, at the time of Moses, was... Historians say, the most powerful and richest country on the earth. Prior to Christ, no one could be compared to Moses. But Christ did come. And the author of Hebrews dropped several truth bombs. In Hebrews 3, I want, you to, I want to help you identify four ways that Jesus is greater than Moses. I showed you from the Old and New Testaments that the data points on Moses' side of the ledger, like here's his side of the ledger, here's what's going on. Now let's look at Jesus' side of the ledger. With, with each data point, I want to give you a little bit of application to consider as well. Here's a snapshot of why Jesus is greater than Moses. I think I got it on the, the screen here. He's greater than Moses because we see that he's an apostle and a high priest. We see that he's the greatest prophet. It says in our text that Jesus is our confession and Jesus is the builder of the house. We'll take them one at a time. Hebrews 3.1 is the only place in the Bible where Jesus is called an apostle. We read, Therefore, holy brothers, who share in a heavenly calling. Consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession. It's the only place in the Bible where the word apostle is used to describe a characteristic of Jesus. What does the author of Hebrews mean when he says apostle? Well, the word apostle means one who is sent. Jesus was sent to be the primary means of God's revelation. God revealed himself to Moses, at least in part. God revealed himself to Moses more than anyone else in the Old Testament. Further, God sent Moses here, there, and everywhere. For what purpose did God send Moses? To deliver God's people out of the hands of Pharaoh. At least that's definitely how it starts. To lead God's people to the promised land. But Jesus, God's final and definitive messenger, is the greatest deliverer of God's people. Jesus is truly different. He is God. He was sent to do far more than what the great Moses accomplished. Many of you know John 3.16, right? For God so loved the world that he gave his son. Sending because of love for the purpose of delivering the lost is a fundamental characteristic of God. 
It occurred to me while thinking about Jesus being the greatest apostle that God sends all Christians. Like you don't need, like this is a little point of application, you don't need like the official title apostle at the end of your email. <laughs> Sean Powers, apostle. You don't need that title to realize that you are sent by God as well. In a very real sense, you are sent out by God to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. God sends you to live distinctly in your family and in your community. But you and I know it's easy to forget that God has saved in order to send. The mundane of everyday life wrestles you to the ground, sometimes like in cap- uh, causing you to just be unable to live out God's calling for your life. Like that happens. Or you're so busy that it seems impossible to pause and ponder the purpose of your life. The application point is that because God sent, God the Father sent the Son, the Son is now sending you, the church, to make a difference on behalf of Christ. And being sent by God is not a burden, but it's actually quite the opposite. It's a, it needs to be a beautiful privilege. Think of it this way. God has entrusted you with the most wonderful and powerful message that this world has ever known. So yes, we see the author of Hebrews say that Jesus is the great apostle, right? He's been sent. But also we now have been sent. Along with being called an apostle, Jesus is called the high priest. We're going to talk in more detail when we get to Hebrews 5 and 7, what it means for Jesus to be called a high priest because he gets compared to this guy named Melchizedek. You probably want to, want to put a pin in that. We'll talk more about that in the future. But here is the implication of Jesus being the high priest. You have the ability to approach God through Christ. You do not need an earthly priest or pastor to mediate on your behalf. You come to Jesus, the high priest, who presents you before the Father. I mean, if you pause to think about this from the standpoint of application, it's actually quite profound. You can approach God when you wake up in the middle of the night or during your midday lunch. You can approach God at church or while you're throwing a fishing line out at the lake. You can approach God at home or at work. Christians... God has made himself available to you through Christ, our great high priest. You know, Moses also served as a priest. He mediated between God and Israel, but his mediation was limited. The mediation of Jesus Christ is unlimited. You can approach God as you are, because of Christ. Here's a little bit of church history to highlight this data point, that Jesus is the great high priest, and why it's so important. During the Reformation, a lot of changes obviously took place. Things took, uh, changes took place theologically, but also very physically. Martin Luther rediscovered the doctrine of Christ being our mediator between us and God. Well, in the Catholic churches in the 16th century, there, were, there was a physical screen. It was called a rude screen that divided the, pre, the people from the priest and the altar. 
So it'd be like, it'd be kind of set it right here. And I would be behind this rude screen and you'd be sitting over there. Most Eastern Orthodox churches and Latin Catholic churches still have a rude screen. In the 16th century, in regions of Europe where Protestantism took root, those screens were removed. It was a symbolic move packed with a ton of meaning. Not only is Jesus the great high priest, but you have access to him. The screen has been removed. You approach the altar of God, not through a priest, but through Christ. You do not approach God through your pastor. You approach God through Christ. Back to Moses for a moment. When Moses went up to Mount Sinai to receive the Ten Commandments, did the people of God go up with him to speak? Nope. You know, there are even limitations to Moses' interaction with God. But through Christ, we see and speak with God. So, so far, we have two data points that tell us about the greatness of Christ and hopefully... You're also seeing the effects of Christ upon your life. The next data point is that Jesus is the greatest prophet. Let's reread verses 1 to 3. Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him, who appointed him, just as Moses was faithful in all God's house. For Jesus has been counted more worthy of more glory than Moses. As much more glory as the builder of the house has more honor than the house itself. I want you to consider what is being said about Jesus in verse 3 in particular. In light of everything we've learned about Moses, Jesus is greater than Moses. Jewish tradition, as I've been saying, considers Moses, Moses the greatest prophet who's ever lived. The Torah, so the first five books of the Bible. The Torah ends this way, talking about the greatness of Moses, him him being the greatest prophet. And there has not arisen a prophet since in Israel like Moses, who knew the Lord face to face. None like him for all the signs and the wonders that the Lord sent him to do in the land of Egypt, to Pharaoh and to all his servants and to all the land, for all the mighty power and all the great deeds of terror, think of the plagues, that Moses did in the sight of all Israel. So we have that, and then now the author of Hebrews tells us that Jesus is worthy of more glory than Moses. So what's the point? Well, prophets proclaim truths about God, right? They proclaim truths about God. God spoke to Israel through Moses, but now a greater prophet is here for us to listen to. The words of Moses are not negated because of Christ, but they are magnified because of Christ. All that Moses spoke pointed to Christ. Therefore, we we need to listen to the greatest prophet, Jesus. We, We will explore this verse next week, but we read in verse 15 of Hebrews 3. Today, if you what? Hear his voice? If you hear his voice? That means someone's Speaking, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. Prophets speak. People listen. 
God has supremely spoken through Christ, and we must listen. For a moment, um, I'm going to speak to the younger crowd in this church, especially if you've been coming to Redemption Hill Church for a while. Do not harden your heart toward God. Do not harden your heart, but come to a Savior who provides everlasting love, peace, and hope. He is the great prophet who tells you the truth because he is the truth. Would you not agree with me that we live in a time where there are so many lies being spoken, half-truths that amount to lies being spoken? I would even concede that there is so much noise in our world that it can be hard to discern truth. But here's the deal. Again, speaking to you younger folks, if you are looking for the truth, you need to hear it from Jesus. You need to hear it from him, the greatest prophet. Okay, Hebrews 3, verses 1 to 3, gives us at least three data points. I could stop right now and say with certainty that Jesus Christ is the goat. He's the greatest apostle, high priest, and prophet. We can compare him to others, but we all know there's no one like him. And I want to show you a few more data points. Back to verse 1 for a moment. We read that Jesus is our confession. That's what it says in verse 1. We're going to see the word confession pop up a few more times in the book of Hebrews. A confession is something you say about what you believe, right? It's something you say about what you believe. Every person who has ever existed has a what? A confession of faith. Every person who's ever existed has some type of confession of faith. Even the atheist, the one who does not believe in God, is making a confession. The question is not, are you confessing something? The question is, what is the substance of what you are confessing? You know, it's not, it's not lost on me that we are a confessional church with a confession of faith. I want to point out something. Like right here, our confession of faith in this little book right here. I want to point out something. Our confession of faith, this book, is worthless unless it points us to Christ. You all know I love theology. I get geeked out in theological conversations. You buy me a cup of coffee, we'll sit for hours. But all the great theology in the world is pointless unless it leads us and points us to our Savior, Jesus Christ. Knowing God is not about a bunch of abstract theological truths. Knowing God is confessing Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. And proclaiming his gospel message. Theologian Thomas Schreiner says in the following about Hebrews 3. The confession is not an abstract list of doctrines. It focuses on Jesus himself and his work on the cross for the reader's salvation. So what does that mean for your life? 
Should you not study theology or ask questions about God and his word? Of course. It is good to study theology and ask good questions. I encourage it. May this be a church where that is indeed the case. But it all must lead us back to Jesus. Every single time. In a sense, Jesus is the purest form of what we confess. He is the great apostle, high priest, and prophet. He is all of those roles and more. The Jews confessed what Moses taught. But Jews do not believe that Moses is God. Christians confess Jesus Christ because he is the Son of God. The last data point that I want to show comes in the form of a metaphor. Let's read verses 3 to 6 of today's text. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of the house has more honor than the house itself. Verse 4. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant, to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. Allow me to give you an example of what we read in these particular verses. I'm always amazed at uh, what my kids can create. I'm sure parents, you've seen that with your kids as well. My girls love Legos. and The things that they make out of Legos is like crazy, like I'll uh, come home from work, and I'll walk into the living room, and all of a sudden there's like an entire village <laughs> made with Legos. And I'm like, how would you do that? I mean, the, the, the imagination allowing you to do that is amazing. What is going on when I acknowledge the greatness of these little structures? Yes, I acknowledge the beauty of the structure, but that leads me to acknowledge the one who created the structure. The building is great. We can even admire the beauty of the building. We can take note of the structural integrity. But all of our observations lead us to the one who built the house. Moses, as you all know, was a faithful attendant in the house. He was faithful to lead Israel out of Egypt and then through the wilderness. Praise God for the faithfulness of Moses. I can't wait to meet Moses for the first time in heaven. Moses even testified about the coming of Christ. That's verse 5 of Hebrews 3. But Jesus, the creator and sustainer of the house, is far greater than Moses. But here's the twist in our text. What does the house consist of? What's the constitution of the house? You. You, the people of God. God's house is not brick and mortar. I mean, my goodness. I mean, we've been meeting in a cafeteria. I mean, the second cafeteria in two months. And then I get an email on Wednesday, like we're going to go meet in the gym because they're waxing the floor and doing all the things. You know why I'm not put off by any of that? Because we are God's house. Don't get me wrong. The logistical nightmare stinks. <laughs> Getting the email, I'm just kind of like, ah, 
Okay, what are the things we got to do? How are we going to do this? You know? But at the end of the day, not put off at all. We are God's house. We're God's house. Now, there's nothing wrong with church buildings. Don't hear me saying that. I love aesthetically pleasing church buildings, beautiful buildings. I mean, you can send me back to the 14th century in a building like the Cathedral of Notre Dame in Paris. I would just love to be there when it was opened. I love beauty. I love to see the beauty in what has been created. But you are the house of God. I mean, here's more proof. The mere existence of this church is proof that we as a people are the house of God. It is not lost on me that most of you have gathered to worship God in a lot of different places over the course of four and a half years. I've lost track. I tried counting the other day with Sharice in the car of all the parks we've met at, all the pavilions we've met at, all the buildings we've met at, and yet God is building his house with you and me. Jesus has been the builder of this house, and to God be the glory. And I wish, I know it's 4th of July, half, half of our folks are traveling. I wish they were here to hear me say that. Jesus is building his house with you and me, and to God be the glory. So, we may instinctively know that Jesus is the goat, right? We know that. The data points are conclusive, and there is no debate. We can debate LeBron James and Michael Jordan all day, but in terms of this conversation, there is no debate. Nonetheless, understanding the weight of Jesus being greater requires you to know the importance of Moses. Seeing Moses for who he is should help us elevate the stature of Christ in our own lives. I've, I've tried to sprinkle in application throughout this sermon, but I'll end with this statement and then question. The author of Hebrews challenged his listeners to consider Jesus greater than Moses. We all know that. We see that. That is not our problem. That is not, uh, not, is not our problem today. That is not our temptation. We are not first century Jews who have been reading the law who've been reading the Pentateuch faithfully or hearing it repeated in synagogue day in and day out. In our time and culture, we functionally demonstrate that other things are greater than Jesus. That's the true application point for today. And this morning, are you willing to lay down whatever you have in the place of Jesus? What is greater in your life and in your heart? Today's a great day to lay all of that down because Jesus is greater. You're listening to an audio resource from Redemption Hill Church. This resource is not meant to be a replacement for participation at a local church, but an accessory to the care you're receiving from your own pastors. To learn more about Redemption Hill Church or to give to our ministry, visit redemptionhilldsm.org.